Good morning, beloved. Oh, you can do better than that. Good morning, beloved. Amen. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Good to be gathered with you all this morning to praise God together and to seek his face in word and to seek to give him glory in song and prayer. Uh, let me add my word of welcome to the other pastors, to all of you who are visiting with us and all of you worshiping with us this morning. We pray that thus far you've been encouraged and built up uh, in the Lord. Happy Juneteenth. Yeah. Yeah. And happy Father's Day uh, to everyone. Amen. All right, we're going to do a little bit better. We're clapping this morning. We're going we're gonna to clap for fathers this morning. Happy Father's Day. If this was Mother's Day, we'd have roses and gifts and, you know, a whole train of people just singing hallelujah to them and praise the fathers this morning. We give God praise for them. Yeah, that's all right. That's all right. I brought my amen with me this morning. I do want to wish a happy Father's Day to everyone. I do want to also acknowledge that as Tim prayed so wonderfully earlier, um, these days can sometimes be uh, accompanied by complex feelings, complex emotions, right? Uh, I mentioned last week that my dad left when I was 13. And, uh, and so in some ways, um, I have a, a, a less clear memory of him than I would want, right? And in some ways, I, I feel, have felt his absence um, at significant, significant times. And today also happens to be my mother's birthday. She would have been, praise God, thank you. She would have been 87 today, uh, lost her day after Thanksgiving. And so um, it's complex. And I took Friday off and spent half the day just curled up in bed, remembering mom. And so I'm sharing that in part just to say it's okay to be here and however the Lord's brought you here. And to say, pray that I keep it together through this sermon, all right? Uh, amen. We got a number of things we want to give away. It's some lovely folks standing in the aisles, a couple sisters with Bibles. If you need Bible, a Bible this morning to follow along in the sermon, just raise your hands and uh, they will bring you one. Just hold your hand high if you need a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, this is, now you do. This is our gift to you. We'd love for you to take this Bible and to make it your own. Yeah. Okay, anybody need a Bible? All right, I got one up front here, sis, on the end. Okay. Well, and some other things to give away. Like I said, if this was Mother's Day, we'd have flowers and uh, we have them to give away. Is Malcolm Payne here this morning? I think, is that Shanae? No, that's not Shanae. Where's Malcolm here? Come here, brother. Brother, I got one thing that just has your name on it I want to give to you as an encouragement to you, brother. It's Paul David Tripp's book called Ours. Biblical comfort for men grieving miscarriage. So pray that be a, a comfort to you, brother, and encouragement. And then there's a, a wonderful little book. It's written some years ago, but it's a great book. Um, told it's, it's a if you like a good story and someone who can tell a good story, you'll you'll like this book. It's called A Father for All Seasons by Bob Welch, uh, and it's just a wonderful meditation on. Um, a father-son relationship told through this particular uh, father and son's life. So if anybody wants encouragement as a dad, uh, I'd highly, and a good laugh as a dad, I'd highly encourage this. Is, it, is there a taker? Come on, brother. Well, that was a sister raising a hand for the brother. That's right. That's right. Encourage your man. Come on down. 
I like that. I like that. Praise God for it. Help me, brother. Yes, sir. All right. Then also, uh, again, I mentioned the absence of my dad. I know I'm not the only one. Our sister Blair Lynn has written a wonderful book called Finding My Father, How the Gospel Heals the Pain of Fatherlessness. I got a copy of that if there's a taken. Anybody? Blair Lynn? Here we go. All right, my brother. Good to see you, Blair. And all those books are wonderful, but there are some books that are better than others. There's one book that's best of all. This one is called Daily Strength, a devotional for men. So it's a devotional uh, to accompany your Bible study written for men called Daily Strength with contributions from folks like Alistair Begg and Dane Ortland and a bunch of other wonderful folks. Any, any takers? All right, brother. Okay, you're pointing to somebody there? Got, okay, come on. Come on, sweetie. Get this for daddy. This is how you get dad a um, Father's Day gift when you ain't got no check, right? When you ain't working, when you ain't working yet, all right? And while they come, I do also have a copy of the ESV Men's Study Bible. So is anybody looking for a good study Bible, a good men's study Bible? We'll take that. Come on, brother. Excellent. Hey, girls, good job. Give that to dad. Okay, give that to Jeff. That's okay. You can take it to him for me. You want to take it to Mr. Blue for me? That's that handsome guy standing up right there. Thank you, guys. Y'all give him a hand clap. Praise. Amen. 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 May the Lord encourage us all on this day. So turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1 as we continue our series in 1 Timothy. Am I in the dark or is that just me? I don't know if I feel like I'm about to pass out or something. What's going on? <laughs> it's just um, maybe if we could see if they could turn the booth on so I can see up here. Um, but as we do that, we had a homework assignment, right? Yeah, we're getting back to memorizing scripture together as a church. And uh, amen. That's right. That's right. And um, we were remembering uh, our text from last week, which was 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So is there anybody who is hidden God's word in their heart? Memorize those two verses who want to recite them for us this morning. All right. Come on, Stephen. Y'all encourage Stephen back there. Amen. There you go. And you can do it from right where you are, unless you, unless you want to come up top. Either way. Okay. Amen. 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 There it is. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Anybody else want to recite it for us? Anybody got first Timothy? Yeah, here we go in the middle. Is that Miss Carol? Who that? Hey, sis. Come on, y'all encourage Miss Carol this morning. Amen. 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 Praise God. Praise God. Maybe one more. Is there a little one that's learned it this week? Maybe one more? Doesn't have to be a little one, but give me an older one. Either way. Anybody else? 
Praise God. Praise God. Well, next week, we will take a look at memorizing verses 3 to 7. Don't panic, right? Uh, we're on a roll now. We got those first two verses. Got those under our belt. Now, if you're new to memorizing Scripture, let me suggest a little strategy that you learn either one verse, or I like to learn, my wife taught me this, one sentence at a time. Because, you know, sometimes the sentence is longer than the verse, and then you get sort of stuck trying to remember where it was. So try to learn the whole thought. Learn one verse or one sentence a day, and then each day add a verse or a sentence. And when you've memorized that section, just memorize the whole, just keep repeating the entire thing for the remaining days in the week, okay? So next week, we got verses three to seven. Uh, let's commit that to memory. Uh, hide God's word in our heart in that way. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray together again. Father, indeed, we pray, show us Christ. Reveal yourself, we pray. Reveal your glory in your word. Instruct us as a church and help us as saints. Keep us, O oh Lord, unspotted from the world and ready us for your coming. Feed us, we pray, by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most important days of school, particularly in college, is the first day of class. Because the first day of class is when they give you the syllabus. And the syllabus, a fancy word for this is what's due when. These are the readings you got to do by a certain date. This is when we're going to take certain exams. And usually a good professor will give you an overview of the syllabus and in that way tell you what's expected of you. Now, I was one of them knuckleheads that didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the syllabus. And so I would hear the professor say something like, read chapters three and four out of this book according to the syllabus and not realize that he was just kind of paraphrasing because in the syllabus, you wouldn't have to read all of chapter three and four but certain pages, pages 43 to 55 and 79 to 97. So not reading the syllabus, I'm out there trying to read all two chapters and then mad when we come to class and I find out I ain't have to do all that. You know, y'all are like me because it wasn't the syllabus, it was Ikea. You went to Ikea and you tried to put the bookshelf together without looking at the pictures, right? Didn't want the instructions. Or you're the type who never stops at a gas station and asks for directions. You know where you're going until you don't. Life can be like that, skipping the instructions, not following the syllabus. And when that happens in the life of a church, it's disastrous. You can sort of begin well and for a long time proceed well. But then you sort of run into a situation where if you've not been used to using the book, the Bible, to shape how you live as a church, to guide how you live as a church, you run into a situation where it actually goes beyond your wisdom. And not having had that instinct to come to the Bible, not having read the syllabus, not having taken the instructions from the Lord, that problem gets multiplied. It gets worse. 
And so as we come back to meeting together in person and sort of emerging from um, the, the, the sort of quarantine of the pandemic, as we come back to sort of getting into rhythms in, as, a, as, a, as a local church, we want to come back to God's Word, and we want to come back specifically to the section of God's Word that gives us instructions on how to be a church. Now, in one sense, that's the whole Bible. But in another sense, there are particular letters in the New Testament called the pastoral epistles. These are letters written to pastors instructing them on how to lead the church. And we are thinking particularly of 1 Timothy this morning in a series that we've called Instructions for the Church. And we've come this morning to the very first instruction that Paul gives after he greets Timothy in verses 1 and 2. And I want to sort of answer three questions from this text this morning. If you're taking notes, this is our outline. Number one, I want to ask the question, what's the first assignment of the church? What's the first assignment of the church or for the church? Number two, what is the goal of that assignment? What is the goal of that assignment? We'll see that in verse five. And then number three, what happens if we fail that assignment? What happens if we fail that assignment? We'll see that in verses six and seven. And so with God's help, we want to uh, read this instruction, take it to heart, and live by it. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless, endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than a stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So what's the first assignment given to the church here? Now, you recall Paul and Timothy are like a spiritual father and son. Timothy has traveled with Paul around the Mediterranean world, preaching the gospel, establishing churches. He's kind of Paul's understudy and a member of Paul's team. Uh, Paul has now left him in the city of Ephesus, uh, just as he left Titus in the city of Crete. When he would establish a church and get it going, he would leave a pastor there and move on to the next city to start another church. And Paul had now, it says here in verse 3, to urge Timothy to remain in Ephesus. Now, perhaps Timothy was reluctant to stay there. Maybe he wanted to go to Macedonia with Paul. Perhaps he wanted to keep the team together. Maybe Timothy was timid and uncertain uh, about his gifts and abilities. And if we read back in um, the book of Acts, uh, the story of Paul bringing the gospel to Ephesus, you'll remember there was a great riot in the city of Ephesus. Because Paul was preaching some god other than Diana, the false god that they worshipped in Ephesus, and they had rioted and, 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 and threatened the apostolic team. Maybe Timothy is looking around. He's like, nah, man, I ain't standing here by myself. And Paul has to urge him to stay there. And specifically, notice now, Paul wanted Timothy to remain in Ephesus, verse 3, so that he may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than a stewardship from God 
which is by faith. So the first business of the Christian church and the first business of the Christian pastor in ministry is teaching, is teaching. Almost everything we hope to become as Christians and almost everything we hope to see happen in the world as a result of our witness comes by the means of Christian teaching, of instruction in doctrine and the life that goes along with our faith. So when teaching gets twisted, it becomes an urgent matter to address. Now, in the two letters, the, the, the two pastoral epistles that sort of look like church planting manuals to us, uh, letters written about leading a church, in both of those letters, 1 Timothy 1 and Titus 1, Paul begins here with this issue of teaching and correcting falsehood. So keep your finger there in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and, and turn over just a couple of pages to the book of Titus. So you get 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, then Titus. Titus chapter 1 begins much the same way. Paul gives his greeting in verses 1 to 4. Then he comes to verse 5 and he says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, when you jump down to verse, he gives qualifications for elders, then jump down and notice what the elders are to do in verses 9 through 11. These elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to what? Give instruction in sound doctrine and what? Also to rebuke those who contradict it. Why is this important? Verses 10 and 11. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. You see, right from the beginning of the Christian church, there has been this contest between truth and error. Right from the beginning of the Christian church, there has been an enemy, Satan, who has ministers of light camouflaging themselves, trying to subdue and subvert and destroy the church through false teaching. Teaching from day one has been an aspect of the Christian's spiritual warfare. It's been an aspect of the Christian's um, nurture and vitality and life and guarding the good deposit of the faith has been a main responsibility of the Christian ministry, as well as correcting those who depart from it. Now, notice back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says certain persons. He says it again in, in verse 6, certain persons. Y'all know how we do sometimes. You're in a room and you, you want to sort of point out somebody, and you'd be like, some people, some people, this is Paul's some people. He likes certain persons among you are teaching myths and genealogy. Certain persons among you are encouraging speculation rather than the stewardship of God. And I take it there that Paul is, is these persons are known. Known enough to Paul and Timothy that he doesn't have to name them, but he does sort of remark about them specifically. Certain persons. And I think he's sort of tipping Timothy off here to an important leadership principle. You guys ever had the kind of job where you got one or two knuckleheads that ain't doing their job, and um, the boss comes in, gathers everybody together, and then says to the whole room, 
I want to remind you all to show up on time or remind you all to make our quarter. And you sitting in the room like you all ain't but one person doing that. You ever had that experience? You know, they, they're just going to speak to everybody like everybody's doing that thing. And that ain't right. Just like sometimes as a little boy, we used to get a whooping as a family. Somebody done did something. Mama don't know which one it is. Everybody got a whooping. And then she say something like, well, because you all probably did something else I didn't notice too, right? That ain't right, mama, <laughs> you know? And, and Paul here is, is sort of saying, no, 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 don't do that. Go to those certain persons. Address the people who are actually in error. Because that other thing is avoiding the conflict rather than addressing it, isn't it? Good leadership sometimes requires a direct address of the issue. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy is his job as a pastor. And that's what he's telling the church to expect from their pastors. You must address those who are contradicting the teaching of the apostles and bring the church into confusion. Now, specifically, these folks were going on and on about myths and genealogies. They weren't, they weren't focusing on the the particulars of the scripture and what the apostles taught, they, they were focusing on these made-up stories, these myths and legends, and, and they were getting all down into the, the sort of weeds of genealogy. They were being, uh, is one of my favorite words, persnickety. They were being persnickety. A, a persnickety person is somebody who puts too much emphasis on trivial things. And that's what they were doing. They were emphasizing the trivial over the important, and they were getting people caught up into all these debates about genealogies and myths. In our day, you might think about those persons who are just a bit too carried away with prophecy. And they, and they sort of argue all the details of prophecy, and they got it all figured out. Might even give you a date as to when Jesus is coming, at which point you're like, all right, peace, do, you know. The Bible's real clear. No man knows the day or the hour, right? Or you might think of Hebrew Israelites who, who sort of get all deep down into the genealogies trying to prove that African Americans are really the sort of lost tribe of Israel or really are Jews descended from this or that or the other. And they got their little maps about where all the table of nations went to. And it's like, brother. You, you, you're straining at gnats and swallowing the camel of error. Because the genealogies point to one, Jesus Christ the Lord. And in him is a people made of all peoples from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. And so people sometimes get sort of their teeth into these sort of trivialities and these little intricacies that, that wind up sort of leading to, notice Paul says, speculations, questions, wonderings, but not leading to confidence and sureness and certainty. Christian teaching is meant to lead us to confidence in the truth not questions and doubts about the truth. I love the way uh, G.K. Chesterton put it, journalist in England, uh, a couple generations ago, he said, the purpose of having an open mind is like having an open mouth to close it on something solid. Right? You open your mouth to eat, you don't put air in there. You put something solid in there. 
And that's the purpose of an open mind is not to go on and on about questions, but eventually to close your mind on the truth, to close our minds on something solid and to be convinced of the truth and to hold fast to it. And that's the kind of teaching the Bible calls for in the church. You see, Christian teaching should lead here, if you look there at the end of verse 4, it should lead to stewardship from God that is by faith. The word translated stewardship could be translated a couple of ways. It could either mean, as it's translated here in our English Bible, stewardship, which is the responsibility to take care of something that belongs to somebody else, right? So if I invite you over to my house, we're going out of town as a family and say, hey, would you house sit for us for a couple of weeks while we're on vacation? You come live there as a steward. Right? You take care of the house in our absence. You make sure you know, things are running okay, et cetera. You, 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 you live there like an owner, but your name ain't on the note. I mean, we could, we could change that. We can have you kick in on the mortgage if you want to, but, but you live there as a steward, right? You're taking care of something that belongs to something else, someone else. That's what we have with the gospel, a stewardship. That's what we have with the Bible, a stewardship. We have the word of God, the thoughts of God, the message of God set down in print for us and placed in our hands as if God said, here, take care of this for me until I come back. We want the kind of teaching that makes us good stewards of God's word. Or that word might be translated good order. You may have a footnote in your Bibles that says that, points you to that. So he wants the kind of teaching that promotes good order. Uh, from God that is by faith. And here, the emphasis, as, as, as Paul places elsewhere, is, is on this fact. 1 Corinthians 14, 33, God is not a God of confusion. It's not the author of confusion. 1 Corinthians 13, or excuse me, uh, 14, verse 40, where he says there, then, let everything be done in decency and in order. There's an there's a, there's a order that should sort of take place in our lives as we come under God's teaching, and there's an order that should take place in our churches as we submit to God's teaching, and that order comes from God through faith. So a wild church is a contradiction. A, a disorderly church is a contradiction. Because we are a collection of disciples, which means we are, we are people who live under the rule and under the teaching of the Lord. And the Lord is not about chaos and confusion, but about order. And it really doesn't matter which way we translate this here, because order, good order, leads to stewardship. And a good stewardship promotes good order. That's what is meant to happen in the life of the church. So let me ask you this question. Just looking here at verses 3 and 4, and the first assignment of the church is to preach the truth and defend the truth. Let me ask you this question. How's your appetite for the truth this morning? How's your appetite for the truth this morning? Think about your spiritual diet, my spiritual diet. What's it made up of? Is it, is it made up of truth from the Bible, or a little myth from here, and a little myth from there, and a little speculation from friends? 
who, who sort of influences you most? What source of knowledge influences you most? Is it, is again, what we read in God's book or what is it something we read in, in other books? How's our appetite for the truth? And here's another question. If we had to be corrected because of falsehoods we believe, are we the kind of people who would humbly accept the correction? Or are we the kind of people who would kick against it and insist that, that we're correct in everything we believe and teach? Beloved, nobody's correct in everything. Are we humble enough to embrace correction? A final question, are, are we the kind of folks who confuse questions with humility? I think that we live in an age where people are anti-authority and they're anti-certainty and, and they sort of have a high opinion of questions and they mistake simply having questions as a kind of humility, a kind of modesty. Well, I think it's good to admit that we have questions sometimes and we don't always have the answers, but I think it's wrong for us to think that merely having questions makes us humble. It might actually be a species of pride, that kind of pride that rejects God's truth. So how are we related to the truth this morning? Because if we're not teachable and correctable, then we're the kinds of people who actually hinder the church in its first and most important mission rather than help the church in its first and most important mission. So what is the first mission of the church or the first assignment to the church? It is to teach and protect the truth. Let me give a plug here for our, our PSA team. If you're new to the church, we have five teams here that we try to organize the whole congregation into. So we want a member in one of, of these five teams. And, and the fifth team is called the Truth Promotion Team. It's a team whose, whose task it is to figure out uh, for us as a church how it is as a church. We, we stand in a world with lots of different ideas and lots of different truth claims, how we stand in the world humbly but confidently proclaiming the truth of the Bible and the gospel and answering error and protecting people from error. Maybe that's something the Lord has stirred you up with a passion to do. So you might, you might want to join that team. But let's move to the second question. We're getting instructions for the church here, and that, that first assignment is that we would uh, protect the truth. Here's the next question. What's the goal then of that assignment? What's the goal of that assignment? Paul gives us the answer right there in verse 5. Look with me. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, next week, if you're memorizing Scripture and you sort of get behind and you, you sort of feel like you can't memorize the whole paragraph, if you only memorize one verse, memorize this one. This is, this, is the, this is the apex of this paragraph. This is the cherry on the top of this paragraph. Paul is saying here, we're going to address these certain persons in verse 3. We're going to address these certain persons in verse 6. We're going to do this in order to create this one thing to produce this one thing, love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And once again, the Bible is confronting the mood of our day, isn't it? Many people today think that if we love someone, then we would not confront them. We would leave them to believe what they want to believe, we would let them do what they, whatever they wish to do. 
We would not challenge their beliefs because all roads lead to God or because you got your truth and I got my truth. But if we treat people like that, beloved, that's not actually true love. Our society gets this wrong because it confuses permissiveness with love. It's Father's Day, and any good father, any good parent here this morning will tell you that if you love someone, you cannot just leave them alone or give them everything that they want. That, that in fact, part of good parenting is teaching your children things like delayed gratification and, and teaching your children uh, what's good for them versus what's bad for them, or teaching your children just basic right and wrong, Right? If we don't do that, then we're not, we're not loving our children. We're abandoning our children, right? If, if we don't do that, then we will be leaving them to destruction instead of leading them in love. See, love confronts. The Christian pastors and the Christian church has to confront, in this case, falsehood. And that confrontation has a goal. And it is the production of yet more love. And it's a, it's a beautiful kind of love, too, isn't it? Notice that this love comes from three springs. It springs up from three sources, three qualities, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. In the Bible, the heart often symbolizes the soul. It symbolizes the, the sort of center of a person's being, the most important aspect of a person's being. The heart is the center of our thoughts, our feelings, our, our wills, and our actions. It's where, it's where sort of all of our actions come from, Jesus teaches us. So a pure heart means goodness from the soul, it means goodness from the center of a person. We, we want love that comes from there. That's the goal of Christian instruction. And then notice now the, the conscience. The conscience is the, it's kind of the moral police inside of a person. It's the voice inside of us that says, you know that ain't right. Or, or says to us, that's good. That's good. The, the conscience is God's law written on our hearts. It, it, we can have a good conscience, meaning that our conscience responds accurately to right and wrong. Or we can have a bad conscience. We can even have a, a cut conscience, which means then that our conscience isn't accurately tied to right and wrong. We call white, black, black, white. We call good, bad, bad, good. That's a, that's a bad conscience. But we want to live from a good conscience, from an accurate knowledge of right and wrong. And then there's faith. And here, faith refers not just to belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it refers also to the faith, the, the life of faith. So it's referring not just to uh, that point in time where we put our trust in Jesus as our Savior, but it's also referring to the life that flows out of that, the life of continuing trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And so we want, a, we want a, a love that comes from walking not by sight, but walking by faith. A, a love that comes not by walking from what we can see other people doing, but a love that comes from believing that God is real and we can trust him and depend upon him despite what we see. So the Bible here, Paul here is calling us into faith. 
And this faith, you might imagine it kind of like a, a shelf anchored into your wall in your home on, on which you put your precious valuables. And, and maybe your valuables are heavy. And you put them all up on that shelf. You arrange them as you will. And you're trusting that shelf to do what? To hold. To hold those valuables. To keep those valuables. You're, you're putting your things up there and you're walking away. Not looking over your shoulder wondering if it's going to fall out the wall. But you're walking away like it's secure. Well, that's what it is to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we come to Jesus and we believe that he is who he said he is and that he could do what he said he would do, that he is the son of God and that he did, in fact, die for our sins so that we would have forgiveness from God and that he did rise from the grave so that everyone who has faith in him would have eternal life and righteousness in him. And when we come to Jesus in faith, it's as it were, Treating Jesus like that shelf, taking our soul, taking our hopes for forgiveness, taking our hopes for eternal life, and we're putting them all on the shoulders of Jesus. And we then walk with him, trusting him to carry us and to keep us just as he promised. And Paul is saying anyone who does that should then be entering into a life of love because God is love. And Christ, who has loved us, pours his love into our hearts, that we might love others. If you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, understand that when Christians invite you to become Christians, we're inviting you to come into God's love. His love which he proved by sacrificing his son for your sins and our sins. His love which he will prove and testify to, if you put your faith in Jesus, by sending his spirit into your hearts to cry out, Abba, Father, to call God Father, and to experience his love. And he will call you into a life of love with other Christians, with your families, everywhere you go. We would not have you live a loveless life. We would have you live the life of God's love which is a life you can only live by faith in his son, trusting him to save you from your sins and to make you a son or daughter of God. This is the wonderful thing about the gospel, this good news on a day like Father's Day when many of us have such complex relations with our fathers or maybe even absent fathers. God reveals himself as the best father. Not like our earthly dads, whether they're good or bad, because God is a perfect father who loves until the end. And so we would have you come know him and trust him and believe in him and experience his love. If you want to know more about how to do that, don't leave today without talking with us about what it would mean to have God as your father and to live in his love. And so, Christian, the goal of this command that Paul, that Paul gives Timothy in verses 3 and 4 is this kind of love, love that comes from a pure heart and uh, a good conscience and a sincere faith. And I suspect that in a room this size that for some of us, those words sound pretty vague, sound pretty abstract. They don't sound all that practical. Well, I, I want you to see the importance of these things by simply imagining their opposites. What if love comes from a dirty heart instead of a pure heart? What if love was connected to impure desire and sinful selfishness 
Well, we all know then that that kind of love would not be biblical love, but chances are would be exploitative and manipulative, wouldn't it? Because it comes from a dirty heart. Nothing could be more practical than a, a pure heart. Or, or think, for example, about love. That comes from someone with a bad conscience instead of a good one. Then, then that love would either be connected to guilt or connected to a failure in telling the difference between right or wrong. That's what a bad conscience is. Love coming from guilt. Well, though that person was probably only then, quote, loving you because they felt bad. But what happens when they no longer feel bad? Probably stop acting loving, don't they? They were just soothing their own conscience. They weren't loving you with a godlike love. Or, 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 or the person who has ceased to be able to tell the difference very clearly between right and wrong because their conscience has been corrupted or maybe even cauterized, been, been cut through. Well, then, in the name of love, that person would either do wrong to you and call it love, or call you to do wrong with them and call it love. They say things like, if you really love me, then you would do some sinful or wrong thing. That's not love, beloved. That's a bad conscience seeking sin, using love as camouflage. Or, or if love came from an insincere faith, then it would be religious manipulation and spiritual abuse, wouldn't it? That, that person would be a wolf in sheep's clothing. It would pretend to be a Jesus follower, but, but really be an imposter. And the last place we want imposter syndrome is in the church. That love would be a disguise, hiding the true self from the sort of vision of God's people. It ends in ruin, too. See, love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith is the most precious and practical thing we could ever have in a church. The main point of Christian teaching is to produce that kind of love. So a couple of questions here. Questions we should ask ourselves as Christians and as people. Number one, they all come from the Psalms. Number one, is my heart pure? Is my heart pure? Remember what David said in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. That's his prayer and his longing, isn't it? A pure heart. And number two, is my conscience good or does it condemn me? Is my conscience clean? Is it clear or does it condemn me? Remember Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. There the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I love the way the psalmist just pleads for a kind of transparency before God and pleads for God's inspection and then God's leadership, that he not be left hostage to his own heart and the deceitfulness of his heart? Or question number three, do I really believe in and trust Jesus enough to risk loving others? Do I have the kind of faith in Jesus who has loved me, 
that would then lead me to love others the way he has loved me. Psalm 86, verse 2. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Do I believe that if I trust in Jesus, he would save me, even when it comes to the risky thing like love? We know that love is critically important every time we reach a difficult point in our relationships, don't we? It could be the marriage relationship. It could be the parent-child relationship. It could be the work relationship. And, and, and just constantly we're confronted with this question, am I going to love right here? Am I going to love right now? That, that's the conscience telling us that actually in God's sight, love is what makes the difference could not be more practical, could not be more beautiful than when we Christians practice it the way God has practiced it with us. Which brings us to our final question. We've asked, what's the first assignment? And that is to uh, teach and to confront error. We've asked, what's the aim of this assignment? What's the goal of it? It is to produce love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And then the question, third question then is, what happens if we fail this assignment? What happens if we fail this assignment? That's what we see in verses 6 and 7. The Apostle Paul continues, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Whenever people commit to, to false teaching, this text says they swerve and they wander. Sometimes I get frustrated driving in D.C. I, I, I'm probably the only one in here that does that. I mean, if folks ain't stopping their car in the middle of the street when they could pull over to the curb, then, then they're doing things like making a left-hand turn from the far right lane, cutting you off, swerving and carrying on. Yesterday, I was driving back from Maryland. I went and got some uh, food. I was coming back home, and we're on a two-lane street, and it had a wide shoulder. And I'm driving along doing 10 miles over the speed limit, because you can do that. And would you know, this man passed me on the right over there, off the shoulder, passed me like I was sitting still. And this is also when I pray the most, because I'm like, Lord, get me home. Get me home. Be out here with these people, man. Get me home. And one thing we can all say about swerving is swerving is dangerous, beloved. It's dangerous. It's reckless. When we swerve, we don't, we don't pay attention to our lane. We don't stay in our lanes. We don't stay in the boundaries that are marked to keep us safe. We not only swerve with cars, beloved, but, but here this text is saying we can swerve from the truth. We can swerve in the faith. And swerving from the truth is more dangerous because we leave the boundaries of safety for our soul. And this swerving, notice, leads to lostness. That's what Paul means when he talks about they are wandering. I don't know if you've ever been lost before. I'm a man, so of course I have not. <laughs> maybe as you were driving, if you've had this experience of being lost, you were, maybe you were driving in a new city. And, and getting lost is an interesting experience, they tell me. <laughs> One moment you know where you are, right? And then by one or two wrong turns, you're completely lost. 
you know, you go from the familiar and the comfortable to the foreign and the panicky in moments. And that's what leaving the route gets you, is it gets you lost. And that's what the Bible means by they wandered away into vain discussions. When people swerve from the word of God, they begin to talk about empty things, trivial and meaningless meaningless things. The entire conversation and the way of life becomes vain, becomes empty. The only thing worse than being lost is being lost and acting like you ain't. The only thing worse than being ignorant is being arrogant in your ignorance. And that's what verse 7 is pointing out here. Notice in verse 7, he says, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying, don't even know what they're saying, or the things about which they are, notice, making confident assertions. They don't know what they're saying. They don't know the subject matter they're talking about, but they're confident. They're bold, they're they're assertive. The only thing worse than ignorance is being arrogant in your ignorance because then you can't be corrected, not easily. And this is what happens when false teaching and false teachers go unchecked. This is what happens when the church doesn't take care of its first assignment. Some people end up wandering around loss. Some people try to teach that lostness to others. It's a terrible circumstance. So we should just make a couple of applications here. We'll be done. Application to my brother pastors. The first bullet point on our job description is defending the truth by confronting those certain persons who would teach error. And so as brother pastors, let us never shrink away from this responsibility. Let us never shrink away from telling the truth with the aim of building people up, not only in truth, but in love. This is how we guard the sheep that God has entrusted to us. This is how we, this is how we make known the way of life and how we keep people from perishing, swerving from the truth. And church family, let us pray for our leaders to have love enough to correct people in this way when it's necessary. And pray that such correction meets the goal of verse 5, of producing that kind of love. And and let us pray for ourselves as a congregation that we would always be marked by a love for the truth. And that that love for the truth would not just be limited to our generation, but if Jesus doesn't come for 100 years or 200 years or 1,000 years, he would be pleased to preserve a congregation known as ARC that all those years are committed to the truth and love the truth and proclaim the truth. And Christian, as an individual, can I just exhort you to be careful only to listen to those teachers inside and outside the church that actually teach the truth of the word of God? I'm sometimes shocked when I have conversations with with persons. Every once in a while, I'll meet someone at a conference or someplace like that, and they'll say, I I really appreciate your ministry, been helped by your ministry, things of that sort, and we'll keep talking. And then they'll start talking about other people who've influenced them. And uh, I won't name names to protect the guilty, but they'll start start naming some names of people. I'll be like, how are you listening to them and me? We're saying two completely different things. What... What's happening in your head? You know, and then all of a sudden what seemed like a compliment actually becomes a a sort of illustration of a lack of discernment. 
right? And so I just want to exhort you as a Christian to guard the ear gate. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, and to make sure that what comes through the ear gate is, in fact, the Word of God. Rightly taught, line upon line, precept upon precept, explained in its context, and applied faithfully to your life. And beloved, I just want to I just want to warn you that from the days of the Apostle Paul, not every teacher does that. Not every teacher does that. And beloved, just because they're on TV, that is no sign of God's approval of them. They can look really slick and really successful and really flashy and really charismatic. You may look at them and say, they will preach Pastor T into the dust. Pastor T is so boring. This guy's exciting. But beloved, it's not about the pyrotechnics. It's about what's being said. And if it's true and accurate according to God's word. Now, let me tell you how deep this is. That guy who teaches false things can have his Bible wide open and can be pointing to stuff in the Bible and, and, and can be quoting the Bible just like Satan quoted the Bible to Jesus, all out of context and all off the point. Know your Bibles well enough that you can hear a counterfeit and avoid them. Right? So, Christian, pay attention to who's feeding you, who you're learning from. One, one last application to certain persons. <laughs> certain persons who love apologetics. I love that you love apologetics. But, but can I just say to you that particularly among young Christians who get fascinated with apologetics, you are often falling prey not to love but to pride. That, that your, quote, knowledge puffs you up, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.1. Pride builds up, or excuse me, love builds up, pride puffs up. And, and there are a lot of folks who will read a text like this and go, yeah, let's defend the truth, and, and that's great. And they want to rush into the battle and defend the truth. And instead of remembering verse 5 that the aim of this charge is love, they're just looking to knock somebody out. That's not from the Lord. So if you have a, an interest in apologetics, and I think Christians should, so I'm not dogging that, but if you have an interest in apologetics, I hope you have a greater interest in love, in growing in love and building others up in love. Can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> so this is the church's first assignment. So as we come back to gathering and we come back to meeting and we come back to getting into the rhythm of things and we come back to God's instructions for us, one of the things we have to come back to is we reassemble, having been scattered for two years and, and having had to sort of get our spiritual diets uh, met via online stuff. Uh, one of the things we need to do now is begin again to sort of draw some lines and to sort of separate the wheat from the shaft of our teaching and make sure that we're feeding on the pure milk of God's word. And that as, as, as pastors, we are guarding the teaching of the church. And as hearers, you are guarding the teaching of the pulpit. And that we are growing in love as God intends us to. May the Lord give us grace to do precisely that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. A word, Lord, without error. Not that preachers are without error, 
for, for many error. And this is why you tell us in your word that many, not many should teach because we face a, a more strict judgment. But we thank you for the word itself. It's like gold purified seven times in the oven. It is pure. It's like honey from the honeycomb. And we pray that you would awaken our taste for your word, that you would awaken our delight in the truth, and that you would, by your grace, protect us, Lord, from myths and genealogies and endless discussions about empty things, but rather you would help us to feed upon Christ and so be built up in the faith and be strengthened for the life that you've called us to live. We pray not only for ourselves as a church, but we, we pray for other churches in the city and across the globe who are committed to this same gospel and committed to this same Bible. We thank you, Lord, for our brother Welton Bonner as he studies to, to replant a church here in Northeast D.C. We thank you for Capitol Hill Baptist Church that offers an internship program and, and it commits itself to the preaching of the truth and the gospel. We pray that you would make them more faithful each day. We thank you for our brother Jeremy McLean, our brother Joshua Rolak. We thank you for the churches that have gone out from here, Mercy of Christ and Congress Heights Community Church. And we pray there too, Lord, that they would be outposts for the truth and the gospel, not wavering, not swerving, not wandering into vain things. And so many other churches, Lord, so many that have been important to us individually and collectively, we pray your blessings upon them, protect them from the truth or from the error, preserve the truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.